Welcome back to Energy Explained, the family podcast and YouTube channel. I'm here with my father, Vikram Rao, who joins us from just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. And my father is an expert in all things energy. He has a PhD in engineering from Stanford. He spent his entire career in the oil and gas industry and retired as the chief technology officer of Halliburton. So he speaks with authority on all things energy. And I'm joining us out here from Arnhem in the Netherlands. And today we're going to talk about natural gas prices and a lot of the wild pricing changes we've seen, especially in Europe, um, over the past six months. Interestingly, our most watched video was on in March on oil prices, and you correctly predicted the oil price path for the next six months. So now we'll talk about natural gas prices, and I guess we'll see if you're as accurate as you were with oil. So just to lead into the topic, What's going on with natural gas prices worldwide and especially in countries uh, that are in Europe that don't have a lot of domestic natural gas production? Yeah, well, let's uh, first uh, say the facts, okay? The fact is that uh, the price in Europe, uh, in China, uh, perhaps in Japan, certainly let's go to European prices for the moment, uh, uh, are dramatically up on natural gas. Um, mm-hmm. So the price on September 30th or so in Netherlands, which is sort of the bellwether for Europe, uh, was $25 and 20 US dollars, so 25 US dollars per million BTU, which is same as roughly uh, 1,000 cubic feet. Uh, So sorry about the units for European listeners, but uh, that's that's the way I have to to roll. and and so so what is surprising about that is that in June, that number twenty five um, was ten. June of this year, okay, yeah, it was ten. Not too long ago. Yeah. And, and and exactly a year ago from the September thirtieth date, it was four. Okay. Wow. So I, I, I these are the I, natural gas is critical to consumers. Uh, uh, and to industry, and this kind of fluctuation is astonishing. I have never seen it. Uh, uh, I think I'm, I say that slowly because I'm pretty sure I've never seen it. Uh, uh, it used to be that we used to think uh, people like me used to think of Europe pricing being around ten uh, when when the U.S. is around four. Uh, and so the reason that it was as low as four in Europe a year ago was because in in in, in the U.S. it was two, okay. Mm. And so that factor of two ish uh, pretty much holds, but it's totally gone out of the window. Uh, U.S. pricing has doubled to five to a huge five, uh, 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 huge for U.S. But compared to the twenty-five in Netherlands, nothing, okay. Right. So it's a very, it's an extraordinary story. Now. Let's talk about natural gas pricing, and, and you're, you're speaking to really wide variation regionally. And can you help us understand what drives that variation? Because for a commodity like oil, which people might be more used to thinking about there, you have more of a worldwide price. While it's not equal in all places of the world, it's within 10 or 20 percent um, outside of like right by the, the well in Saudi Arabia and so forth. But in natural gas, you're talking about right now, Typically, prices difference about 100%, and right now, difference is about 500%. And what, what's really driving that? What's the core factors driving that? Yeah, what's driving it is that what you just said, that oil is a fungible commodity, natural gas is not. 
uh, oil can be transported between nations on the water for a few dollars a barrel. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and so you, that's right. So a few percentage difference is all you expect between locations. Uh, natural gas cannot be transported across oceans except one way uh, by liquefying it. It's called liquefied natural gas or LNG. Uh, so LNG has two problems with it. One is that uh, it uh, the liquefaction cost and then the transport cost um, adds uh, somewhere between three and five do- U.S. dollars per million BTU, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about three to make it, and depending on how far you take it, it goes to four or four and a half or whatever. Mm-hmm. But those are the kind of numbers, so let's say five, right. okay? So right. uh, so let's say that you have natural gas uh, made in the U.S. today, uh, and today the, the U.S. price is close to five, all right, per million BTU. So reasonably, in Europe, you should be able to get it for five plus four, nine dollars. Right. And, right. and that would be the routine number, and that's what it was in June. Okay. Right. All right. So what what happened? Okay. The the, the cost to make it didn't go up. The cost to right. to ship it didn't go up. Uh, what went up was demand. Okay. Yeah. And when demand went up, the th- and and in countries like Europe and India and China, and Japan, uh, where the marginal cubic foot is from LNG. Uh, when the price goes up, the LNG price goes up, I and mean, LNG sets the price. Okay, yeah. although you Europeans get uh, bulk of your gas from Russia uh, and from your own fields, uh, uh, although those are deteriorating, uh, the price is set by LNG. So people like Russia get a windfall. Uh, yeah. But but it's because the marginal price is set by LNG is that's what your problem. That's why you yeah, get the big differences. Yeah, and then and sort of review that concept. If you recall, if you've taken like an economics 101 class, you would have remembered building a supply curve and where supply and demand meet sets the market price. And what Vikram is saying is that for, supp- for supply to meet demand in Europe, you need to add in liquefied natural gas, which means the market price for all of natural gas will be determined by the price of liquefied natural gas because that's the, the market price that equates supply and demand. So now we understand why there's a prevailing gap between, let's say, the U.S., a huge domestic manufacturer production of natural gas, and Europe, which relies on imports and especially LNG imports. But now that that price delta, which usually is around $5, has gone up to $25. And you explained to us that's because demand is outstripping supply, which means supply cannot respond in the short run to these demand changes. All that can happen is you sort of keep things open a little longer, you push things through a little more quickly, but fundamentally there's not much supply response. Now, how long does it take when you see higher demand to create new LNG productive capacity? Five years. <laughs> okay, so, so there's no, there, there can be no supply response. In the you want to call so that the, elastic? It's quite a, quite a funny rubber band. <laughs> right, it's, so it's almost fixed in the short run, or insofar as it's not fixed, it's based on decisions that were made about five years ago. Now, what that's telling us is that some decisions that were made five years ago, or many, did not anticipate the demand for natural gas today. Now, we know forecasting five years out is difficult, and we have to get this pretty right for things not to create big price swings, because there's another aspect of the problem, which is kind of implicit in your story. It's that demand doesn't respond much to price either, because in many markets, if the price went up by factor two, you know, 
Factor three, you start using that product plus. You start shifting away from product A to product B. But here, if your home is heated by natural gas, there's not a lot of switchability opportunities. You can keep your home a little cooler, but studies show people generally don't do that because they don't really see the price tag. So demand doesn't really respond either. So then why did we mispredict demand five years ago when we plan for the production capacity today? Yeah, I, I, it's, 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 it's a series of uh, things that happened. Uh, curiously, uh, I, nobody's going to want to he- hear this. Uh, one of the main reasons that demand for natural gas increased was renewable energy. Okay, mm-hmm. Nobody's going to want to hear this because it's going to upset consumers to say, okay, we backed renewables, but it's causing a huge uh, dent in our pocketbook uh, on natural gas. And so why is that? Why am I drawing the connection? Both the major renewables, which are solar and wind, uh, are up and down. Okay, in, in right. yeah, diurnal, sun doesn't shine at night and all that stuff. Okay. Uh, the So they need augmentation. Uh, and so the method of augmentation right now is batteries, and that's very costly. Uh, so to give you an idea, the latest bid I saw in Los Angeles was about two cents a kilowatt hour for uh, the solar part, and the battery backup part was another two cents, doubled it. Mm, okay, doubles the and that yeah. only gave them the four to six hours in the evening. It did not give them rainy days. Okay, so mm. uh, so this whole deal about how do you handle rainy days. So take you, take uh, Germany, for example, uh, uh, 40% of its electricity is from renewables. But mm-hmm. on any given day, it'll be 15, 1.5% or 70, 70%. That kind of fluctuation can only be handled with some sort of storage. And we've not solved the storage problem with any way other than with natural gas. So you have this odd situation. The highly desirable renewable energy scenario requires more natural gas. Uh, I would say that the governments who were uh, pushing hard towards renewable uh, didn't give sufficient attention to this issue. Okay, gotcha. uh, and it could be because they thought natural gas was plentiful, uh, yeah. which would have been uh, good dogma uh, until recently. Uh, but yes, that's see, that's what I remember hearing um, in the last few years about how plentiful natural gas is, and in some sense, that's still true because the story here is about where the gas is and where it can get to, and so while gas is still, relatively speaking, plentiful in the United States. From a relative perspective, it's the cheapest form of energy you can buy outside of maybe renewables in very sunny places. But in other places, in Europe, domestic production of natural gas has gone down as well at the same time. So I know here in the Netherlands, I believe the domestic gas production has halved over the past two years due to um, issues in the major gas fields, seismic issues, and other, other production slowdowns. And so that means more of the demand needs to be met with liquefied natural gas. So it's not just the overall natural gas it's also, in many places, how much of the demand can be served via pipelines without liquefaction, which brings into the play the political aspects. So 
Europe gets a large share of its pipeline-based natural gas from Russia, who now has a lot of market power over the price and presumably is set to enjoy very, very, very record profits in the next um, winter and wouldn't look to disturb that. So how do you see that aspect playing out? Because it's not just the overall demand, it's where where the production is. And in certain places, the production's gotten quite thin. Yeah, so actually an interesting fact. So you, pipeline gas, you guys can get from home, so to speak, and you just pointed out the Groningen field is uh, has been de- depleting and will continue to do so. For, yeah. for good reasons, but we've known that. Okay, we've known that right. for ten years. Okay, right. uh, so we should have anticipated Groningen going down. Uh, uh, Norway, you get a lot of your gas from Norway, uh, mm-hmm. and then there's Russia. And Russia, uh, people will remember in 2009, used uh, gas as a weapon, as a political weapon, and yes. shut yes. it off. Okay, due yes. to a dispute with Ukraine. Okay. Yes. Uh, so because of this, uh, they didn't want to go through Ukraine, so they decided to put a northern line called the Nord Stream 2. All right? uh, Europeans wanted a northern line. Uh, uh, the Americans, uh, for, for, uh, for various reasons, depending upon the administration, did not. Uh, and so Nord Stream 2 has been sputtering along, not really going at a fast pace. Russia would like it to do that. Okay. Right. So, so in some senses, Russia might be playing a game of saying, you want Nord Stream 2, uh, then that's when we'll increase our supply. Okay. Uh, now, Russia I did, see. Yeah, Russia did have issues with the fire in Siberia and so forth, okay, in the gas plant. But, but this is speculation. But th- since, because what they did in 2009, it was not out of the realm of speculation to think that they're using Nord Stream 2 as leverage to say, go ahead with Nord Stream 2 at a fast pace, then we will increase production. I'm just speculating, but that's a possibility. But that's your best bet. Best bet for Europe is for Russia to up its production. Now, the other part, you're not that far from Iran and Qatar. You're far enough. At this point, there's no pipeline. Okay. Yeah. Uh, But I'm saying at this point. So from Qatar and Iran and so forth, you can only get LNG, but it's a short run. So it'll be relatively cheap LNG. And those folks have immense gas supplies, just like uh, the U.S. But do they have immense LNG uh, production capacity Mm -hmm. in terms of conversion? Nope. They have got what they've got. (laughs) (laughs) And it's five years from having more uh, in terms of net new versus the current plan. Right. I mean, in five years, they could have more and so forth. And and, Shell has announced, as we discussed last time, uh, more LNG, and their plants will come on stream also in 2025, okay, Uh, five years from last year. Uh, But uh, that doesn't solve anything right now. So it's a bit of a perfect storm going on with natural gas prices in certain places. Um, The production in major producing areas has slipped for various idiosyncratic reasons. Uh, Demand uh, is higher than expected for a variety of reasons, partly because it was a very cold winter last year in in Europe, um, partly because the COVID-related demand decreases have completely faded away, um, and in a major, major part due to the fact that there's an increased reliance on natural gas because that pairs with renewables so well. And what you're saying is that with the plans made by governments around renewables, there wasn't always a plan for securing cheap natural gas because at the time it was felt that natural gas is so abundant you just you can just ignore that part of the plan but everybody made the same assumption you fast forward a few years and all of a sudden there's a pretty extreme shortage 
Now, what sort of is getting me a little worried is we're talking about this right now in early October. Natural gas prices are historically very seasonal. They're higher in the North American winter. They're lower in the North American summer for all the reasons we mentioned because liquefied natural gas plays a more important role in filling the demand in the winter. Now, we're sitting here in October. The prices are at essentially record highs, certainly record relative to oil. What's going to happen this winter, especially in places that are very LNG dependent? Uh, if you have a cold winter, uh I wouldn't be surprised if your price went up to fifty bucks. And what happens in that sort of scenario? Uh, I mean, uh, are you talk? I mean, consumers are going to have massive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's horrible. Uh, I mean, I but uh, you know, I, I'm being a little extravagant, but I don't know who would have thought from June to now it'll go from yeah. from ten to twenty five. Okay, uh, and it's all supply and demand. And if, if there's a cold winter, the folks who can afford it will pay for it. Okay, yeah. and then those who won't will go without, and governments will let us scramble as to how to protect the interests of the populace that can't afford it. Uh, yeah, uh, it is never. I, it, this is I, I. I don't know. I have never seen this before. Uh, and so, but even at twenty-five, it's 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 very steep price. But no, in the cold winter, it could go up. Now, the whole the, Russia is in play. Speaking of Russia, I don't. I don't have a crystal ball on that. There are folks, some other experts are saying that it's a Nord Stream 2 play. I personally think Nord Stream 2 should go ahead. That's me, okay? Because yeah. it offers an alternative route to European gas, okay? And I don't know what the politics are, why uh, those U.S. is against it or has, is seen as being against it, but they should go through. And if, they, if, if that is the price to pay for... Uh, getting more, getting uptick in Russian pipeline gas, then I think Europe should do it. Okay, but you know this is me. I'm not neither an economist nor a politician, but just to get it there. But other than that, I don't see it. Maybe Norway can increase uh, their mm -hmm. gas supply some. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but that's about it. LNG is not a non-starter. We just discussed that. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't switch on a dime. Okay. Uh, but pipeline can. Uh, so that's it. But if you have really cold winter, uh, it's going to be serious. See, the other thing, other factor, seemingly, on the on LNG price going up is uh, there have been droughts in many parts of uh, Asia, especially China. And mm. what the droughts have done, this is probably climate change related, uh, uh, have done is reduce hydroelectric power because the dams have gone down. Okay. Yeah. The flows have gone down. So. Yeah. Hydroelectricity, which is one of the cheapest forms of electricity, but leave that alone, is, is in the form of electricity, uh, uh, has gone down. So the supply of electricity in those countries has gone down from alternative sources, uh, and therefore the pressure on LNG has gone up. So these, so it's a worldwide issue, not a European issue. It's a worldwide shortage of LNG because other forms of electricity production have gone down. And I can sort of, I mean, it, it feels like a little bit of a perfect storm, but it is linked in many respects to climate change with more extreme weather. It, you know, you have more periods of intense cold and intense heat, which requires more intense energy utilization. You have less predictable water flows, um, which create um, 
higher variance in your electricity production, and we've talked about this a lot, the more variance in your electricity production, the bigger your vulnerability to supply shortages is, that's happening. So this is a pretty interesting and picture that seems like it will empower political entities that have the ability to alleviate consumer prices because right now it's not the biggest story in the world because right now most homes in Europe aren't consuming much electricity. Sorry, much much electricity for heating and cooling purposes. They're consuming a much lower amount than they'll consume in the winter. So I, this pipeline, this direct connection Nord Stream 2 between Russia and Northern Europe, I would anticipate that Russia's political um, let's say capital will increase throughout the winter. And I would anticipate that if that deal would be struck, it would be struck this winter because it's the time of maximum bargaining power. But something like that sets us up for how long in the future to alleviate this issue. Oh, it sets up for, forever in a sense because you've got a second pipeline. See, the first pipeline used to go the southern route through Ukraine and mm -hmm. had its political issues, which we discussed. The northern route goes through only court-friendly countries or whatever, uh, less likely to have Russia exert any will, political will, to say we'll cut it off, okay? Because it'll mostly be going to Germany, and Germany's powerful, okay? So I... I think that uh, Nord Stream 2 completion can only be good for the future of Europe. Uh, and as I say, I don't know what the negatives are. I, have no, I, I know the positive, which is it gives an alternative route for, for Russian gas. And Russia is probably capable of producing more and more gas. They have shale gas as well and so right. forth. Okay. Yeah. So I, I would say that's your best bet. Now, a, a very, very, uh, I, I don't know, fanciful possibility is a pipeline from... Uh, the Middle East uh, through the Mediterranean, okay? But I don't know how feasible that is. Uh, uh, but uh, right now, I would say that. And probably get going with uh, natural gas facilities. So for, sorry, LNG facilities. So, for example, if you've got... Uh, uh, if you've got a net uh, import exporting nation, see the U.S., for example, was going to expect it to be a net importer of LNG going back 15 years, okay? Right. Uh, and then shale gas happened, and so it became a net exporter. But U.S. Uh, LNG import terminals very qu relatively quickly could convert to export terminals. Oh. I won't go into technical details, but roughly halving the time, okay? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So if there are if there are locations which were import terminals going to switch to export, they can they can ramp up faster. Okay. Uh, uh, and I see. I'd have to think since I just thought of it. I don't know where they would be, but that's what happened in 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 the U.S. Okay. So that may be the only way to get LNG fully ramped up. Otherwise, there is no shortcut. It takes time to, to finance it and to build it. And how long, like this Nord Stream two? How long, let's say, gets a green light? How long till completion of a project like that? You've got me. I haven't looked at that in a while. Uh, it, it's not dozens of years. It's, it, it, I would say it's a few years. But the point right. is this. It, part of it's already built. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and you just, I think for Europe, uh, it's, a, it's a huge plus. Uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting because... You know, I think as, as we wrap up here, what, what you're really saying is that to further invest in renewables and complete the green energy transition, there has to be a little bit of like a counterintuitive investment in hydrocarbon-based technologies like pipelines that might seem anti-environmental, but without these, it's 
there's no known path right now or no known economical path to the green energy transition. But these are precisely the long-run investments that weren't made in the past because there was a belief that they weren't not necessary. And so as we sit here today, there's no easy fix for this situation. But there are a lot of fixes for the two-and-a-half to seven-and-a-half-year time frame. So this won't reappear. And some of the short-run reasons it's being pressed upon would hopefully alleviate like droughts and so forth. And, and, and some production capacity increases would alleviate just be a, you know. Luck and, so and I, my answer to that is that the solution, the short-term solution is what you say, somehow figure out uh, the natural gas situation. The medium-term solution is figure out storage, okay, uh, mm-hmm. as, uh, other than battery storage. And it's being worked on right now. It's just not hitting this. It, it's tried yet, okay. I see. Uh, and the other medium, medium-term solution for which we need a whole episode for is geothermal energy, okay. I feel geothermal is the future. Geothermal energy uh, is scalable uh, and it's load following. There's a lot to be said for geothermal and it's cheap. Geothermal mm-hmm. energy can be done for less than uh, six cents a kilowatt hour. Okay. Uh, to give an idea, the lowest uh, price for solar is about two and a half, but then you got to double that for the storage. Okay. So it's right there. So geothermal is my favorite. Uh, and I feel that government should recognize that and get rea- get behind it fully. But I think that's a whole new episode, that discussion. Uh, All right. We'll look, look forward to that one on future episodes. And it's a really clear message here that you say that when you, you would make a more modest and targeted investment into natural gas capabilities and a more major sustained investment into alternative energy uh, sources that are not prone to the same environmental factors that our current ones are and thus creating the situation we're in now uh, where our only fallback is natural gas and natural gas itself uh, has a long uh, long run sort of supply elasticities and very little you can do in the short run well interesting conversation we'll certainly look with interest to how the prices develop throughout the winter and see if your prediction of potentially hitting fifty dollars us dollars is bearing out hopefully it does not certainly for consumers but it looks like a pretty um, serious situation that we expect to hear more about. Glad you heard about it here maybe first. And with that, we'll remind you to please like and subscribe our videos. If you're on your YouTube channel, please hit follow on our podcast platforms and please reach out to us on any of the platforms. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for future videos, we always appreciate hearing those. And with that, we'll see you next time.